Hey, thanks for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. I'm your host, Slade Robertson. For over 10 years, I've been a professional intuitive and the author of the blog, Shift Your Spirits, where I try to write about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. Today, I have part three, the finale, in the series of paranormal memoirs I call Tales of a Fourth Grade Haunting. And of course, as always, I have an oracle segment at the end of the show. So be thinking about a question or a concern you have, hold it in your mind, and I'll come back on at the end after the final links and credits and leave you with an extra message. But before I forget, I wanted to update you on the state of the transcription for the podcast episodes. As I mentioned, I've had a lot of requests to include transcripts, and I would love to do that, but transcription is expensive. I have someone lined up, ready to go. She's a fan of the show, and she's itching to type up all these episodes and interviews so they will also be available to read. So I told you guys that you can help make the transcripts a reality, help me hire this young woman, and support my time in producing this show by pledging your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Listeners who support on Patreon can also access bonus Q&A episodes where you send in questions, I record answers to them, and they go out to patrons of the show exclusively. I just posted an exclusive 35-minute episode on Patreon about how to identify your life purpose. I'm really thrilled and touched by how many of you responded last week and chose to pledge through Patreon. So I'd like to give a quick shout out to my new patrons, Leslie Lawson, Terry Inakuma, Sasha Knight, Heather Cox, Talia McGuire, Summon Murid, Sandra Isaac, Julie Barrett, and Oisa Posh. That's a lot of you guys this week. Thank you. It demonstrates that you are enjoying the show and would like for it to continue, and that's very encouraging to me. So if you want to find out how you can become a patron, especially if you would like to see full transcripts of all the shows, please go to patreon.com slash shift your spirits. And that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash shift your spirits. Okay. So back to my fourth grade haunting story. Here's part three, memory, metaphor, and active imagination. I was alone in the house after school, sitting in the vortex, watching Guiding Light and eating a bowl of Lucky Charms when I heard noises coming from the garage. This wasn't a mysterious tapping or a distant ka-chink ka-chink. It wasn't a ghostly racket. It was physical. It was loud enough to make me drop my spoon with a clatter and splatter milk all over my face. I made one of those involuntary, non-verbal animal sounds where your first conscious thought beyond surprise is embarrassed relief that no one heard it come out of you. A cross between the yelp and the moan that a fitful sleeper utters in an attempt to cry out in a bad dream. The white cat had not yet made its appearance, therefore the vortex was not activated. I wasn't nearly as afraid of ghostly activity as I was of a home invasion. In that moment, I was merely a latchkey kid about to surprise a potential burglar, an all-too-real, completely unsupernatural experience that had happened before. 
The year we moved into the greenhouse was when my mother went back to work after years of being a stay-at-home mom. My brother was in kindergarten and an after-school daycare where my mother would pick him up on her way home. I was old enough to ride the bus, let myself in with a key hidden behind a gutter, and occupy myself for an hour or two with light chores like unloading the dishwasher or just watching television. I Indian walked to the bottom of the stairs to investigate the noises in the garage. Now, at this point, most narrators would simply say, I crept to the foot of the stairs and be done with it. But how often do you use the word crept, really? When do you really say, I crept to the foot of the stairs, except if you're trying to sound like a bedtime ghost storyteller? The action, the way that I moved, was much more complicated, specific, and conscious than a creep in the past tense. I moved like an Indian, in a manner we practiced out in the trails all the time, on the balls of the feet, preferably barefoot or in soft-soled moccasins, knees bent in a half-crouch, shifting your weight in slow motion from one foot to another so that you can avoid snapping twigs or scuffing dirt or kicking gravel. The goal is to creep up on an enemy in total silence. So I Indian walked down the stairs to squat in the same position and spot where I knew myself to have previously somnambulated. I was aware that I occupied an uncomfortable proximity to the dark room with its creepy crawl space and mysterious skeleton key, to the den with its carpet-eating monster and the single-fanged ghost spider by the sliding glass door, and now there was someone in the garage dragging around my dad's toolboxes. A very real someone, a thief. Here's an opportunity for me to insert Another of the admittedly forced half-assed grammar lessons which seem to want to serve as some kind of stylistic theme running through this series of stories. A simile is a specific kind of metaphor where you use the word like. The noise I heard in the garage was not like the sound of heavy metal toolboxes being dragged around across a concrete floor. It was that sound, quite literally and without question. No simile or metaphor required. My bedroom was above the garage, and I recognized the gritty slither of the toolboxes sliding across concrete. My dad often referred to the irreplaceable material investment these toolboxes housed. He would not leave them at job sites or in the bed of his truck, but would load and unload them daily, depending on which ones he needed. They were enormous three or foot four-foot-long red metal caskets weighing maybe hundreds of pounds each. A grown man could not lift and carry them on his own. Each morning, while I was still in bed, just waking up, I would hear and feel the garage door roll up beneath me, the coughing purr of the truck engine backed up close to the house, the dented squeak of the tailgate letting down, and then that scratchy, heavy metal sliding across smooth cement sound as he pushed the toolboxes one at a time, stood them up on their ends, and let them fall into the truck bed, partially assisted by their own weight. Maybe my dad had come home early, and these noises were coming from his familiar routine, but I hesitated, unable to throw open the door, because the dragging toolboxes were not accompanied by the sounds of the truck or the garage door rattling up along the ceiling. 
Maybe I just hadn't heard the full sequence of events because I was watching TV on the other end of the house. I ran back up to my room to look out the window, expecting to find the white truck, expecting to feel foolish but relieved. There was no vehicle in the driveway. It was one of those moments when the brain trips, unable to justify or connect the reality of the data it's receiving with the explanation it has chosen only seconds before. Here's a simile. Like when you go to drink a glass of what you know to be water, and there's that half-beat of confusion when you realize you've swallowed a mouthful of Coke. The noises in the garage had suddenly stopped. I froze, listening, realizing I had forgotten my stealth and I was directly above the intruder, only inches of creaking floorboards separating my un-Indian footsteps from his head. As I listened, I felt him listening back. Beyond the ringing in my ears was the manic opening music of cartoons coming from the TV that had been on all along that anyone in the house could hear. I had to get to the phone. There was the white cat scrambling to get out of my bedroom doorway. As I passed my parents' room, I heard that loud stage whisper, Don't look in there! That voice never felt like a warning intended to protect me. It was hateful, annoyed, put out, snappish. It was protecting itself. I held my hands up to my face in a posture of compliance and ran to the kitchen. My mother's number at work was posted by the almond-colored phone on an index card that lined up with the stripes and clusters of the mushroom images on the wallpaper. The kitchen door was at the top of the main stairs, and in those pre-cordless phone days, I was dangerously tethered to a relatively fixed position. As I waded through the dial tones, I stretched the cord as far as it would go to look and listen for activity coming from downstairs. When Mama answered, I walked back deep into the kitchen and turned my back on the stairs, trying not to speak too loudly. There's someone in the house. I tried to explain while whispering and not crying. Can you imagine this for a minute? Your child calling you at work, hysterical about an imminent home invasion? It makes me aware of at least two things. One, that my mother has nerves of steel. And two, just how completely fragile and psychologically unfit for parenthood I am by comparison. As quickly and quietly as possible, I told Mama about the toolboxes in the garage and she told me to stay calm, that she was going to have to hang up and call someone to send someone over to me. I panicked that she couldn't stay on the phone with me, but the sound of the door leading from the garage into the house, opening and shutting, made staying in the kitchen to greet this intruder coming up the stairs an impossible prospect. There wasn't a locked doorknob jiggling. There wasn't any forced entry. Someone had simply opened the door, slammed it shut, and there were heavy footsteps already on the stairs. They're in the house. They're coming up here. The last thing Mama said to me was, hang up and hide. One more second and I'd be face to face with the intruder as he rounded the split-level landing. Even as I ran back down the hall, I could feel his eyes on the spot where I'd just been standing. I should have gone the other way, through the kitchen and out onto the deck outside the house entirely, because in the moment I headed for the bedrooms, I was blocked from leaving without some kind of direct encounter. 
With no other top-level exit available, my impulse was to flee to the greatest distance that the floor plan allowed, through my parents' bedroom and into the master bath. I saw a flash of that old man on the bed and the German shepherd on the floor watching me dash past them with surprised expressions on their ghostly faces. I shut and locked the bathroom door and got into the tub. I suffered the rain stick racket of the ball bearings and the frosted glass door giving away my choice of hiding place as I slid it open. I didn't want to take a chance on repeating that noise, so I didn't close it behind me. I'd laid down flat in the tub, hoping that if someone opened the door, maybe the room would at least look empty on first glance. My decisions were pitifully lacking in planning, I know, but, you know, consider the circumstances. Except for the soft echo of my breath off the tiles, the house was silent. I peeked over the edge of the tub, expecting at any moment to see the doorknob shift as someone tried it and found it locked. There was a strip of light in the gap along the threshold between the carpet edge and the bottom of the door. As I watched, a section of that strip darkened. A slice of shadow moved from side to side. I heard the most subtle thing, audible evidence so faint it must have been supplemented by vision, the sound that carpet makes when someone shifts their weight from one foot to another. Someone was standing outside the door, listening for me. The front doorbell went off in rapid succession, machine gun fire of ding, 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 and then a frantic hammering knock. I could hear an unrecognizable man's voice yelling my name, muffled by all the doors and walls between us. The slice of shadow slid along the gap at the carpet's edge and disappeared. When I finally worked up the courage to come out and go to the front door and look through the peephole, I saw a frazzled and desperate-looking man on the front stoop, barefoot, in disheveled pajamas, bedhead hair standing out in mad spikes, wielding a claw hammer. He was a neighborhood dad from across the street, one who worked third shift and slept during the day. My mother had sent him to rescue me, and he was barely even awake yet when I let him in. I followed him through the house as he checked under beds and opened all the closets, eventually making his way to the garage. He kept muttering, there's nobody here, and glancing back at me with restrained annoyance. I felt an increasing sense of embarrassment and shame, especially when I saw the big red toolbox in the garage, perfectly aligned with its assigned corner. When Mama's burgundy Monte Carlo finally careened into the driveway and screeched to a halt, I was grateful to let her take over apologizing for me. I overheard my imagination referenced more than once, a character flaw I'm still working hard to justify to the world four decades later. Flash forward to 2003. My brother and I are living together again in another haunted house in another city, this time as grown men. Soon after moving into the house on Daniel in the Kirkwood section of Atlanta, I noticed the frequent paranormal activity more than I normally experience. It even crossed my mind, a potential theory, that somehow the combination or synergy of our energies together worked as some kind of magnet. In high school, my friend Catherine and I had light bulbs constantly going out in our combined presence. I didn't mention the phenomena to my brother, 
Although I have long suspected he is one of the most sensitive empaths I've ever known, the subject is extremely uncomfortable to him. He does not like to talk about it. He avoids it out of a sense of self-protection. One morning, after my brother's girlfriend had spent the night, I discovered them talking about the activity that had woken them up. She was excited about it, eager to tell me about what they'd experienced. Maybe her attitude was infectious, or he picked up on an opportunity to impress her, but I was shocked when my brother very bluntly declared, we lived in a haunted house for a while when we were kids. The greenhouse, I said. I had never heard him speak of it. Until that moment, over 20 years later, I wasn't even sure that he consciously remembered. Beyond remembering and acknowledging that he remembered, he recalled details I'd forgotten and in some cases seemed to have picked up on even more than I did. There was a man that died in that house, he said. Remember, a man with a dog. It had never occurred to me before he said it, but the second it came out of his mouth, I knew it was true. I jumped at the opportunity, one I thought I'd never have, to compare notes with him, having believed I would always be alone in my memories and impressions. Wait, before you say anything else, I grabbed two empty yellow legal pads from the office, a couple of pens, and he agreed to an exercise. I told him to list every detail of what he remembered about the man who died in that house. I did the same prompting us both from time to time with specific questions like, How old was he? Where did you see him? What was he wearing? What kind of dog was it? Etc. When we both finally stopped writing and couldn't think of anything further, I gave both pads to his girlfriend and asked her to compare them. You'll just have to trust us that we have never talked about this until this day. The details were all there, identical, Everything that I've related in this series of posts, indeed much of what I've been able to reconstruct came from my brother's recollection. Even our subjective impressions coincided, like what the man in the bedroom with the German shepherd might have died from. We both wrote that he couldn't breathe. See, the motivation for asking you to indulge me in these memories is not so much the haunting in the greenhouse of my childhood but a series of events that began while living with my brother in 2003. As Shifter Spirits approaches its 11-year anniversary, I've been considering how this blog, this podcast, this project, this period in my life might be resolved. Does it continue indefinitely, or do I allow it to end? And if I'm going to end it, what do I have left to share about how I became an intuitive? Remember when this podcast first launched, I told you my origin story, and I talked about Mary, and I said there was a story I had to tell you about her that I seemed to be always procrastinating. The truth is, really, because I think about this a lot, there's a kind of vague superstition that has developed in my mind. I have this weird feeling that if and when I tell you the story of my sighting of the Virgin Mary, I will be done with Shifter Spirits. Much of what has been left unpublished is about how and why Shifter Spirits began, the turning point in my life that occurred over a span between 2003 and 2006 when I launched this site. Living with my brother and remembering the greenhouse together, acknowledging it for the first time, 
marks the psychic closet doors beginning to creep open. This is when my guides became loud, when I could no longer repress the messages I was receiving, when I was presented with an ultimatum from spirit to use this part of my life, and when I began to informally perform my earliest readings. What's missing from Shifter Spirits are these prologues, circles within circles of plot that go together because hindsight allows the pieces to form a bigger picture. Living with my brother again in 2003 brings us back to the significant time in my life immediately following my encounters with Jesse and other stranger angels. Memoir is not the same as autobiography. Memoirs are nonlinear. They are the fragments strung together by your life viewed through a topical filter. They are the moments in your life that come together by association that end up side by side even over great leaps of time and place. What are ghosts, if not the memories we carry? Hauntings are the echoes held in place by or bouncing around within the spaces that they occupy. Psychic events so emotionally charged that they transcend time. Thanks again for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. For show notes, links, and all the past episodes, please visit shifterspirits.com. You can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use to access podcasts. You don't have to use the purple button on your iPhone. Some people don't like that app. My personal favorite podcast app is Overcast, so check that one out. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free ebook and meditation to help you connect with your guides, please go to sladeroberson.com. And if you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, you can start the course for free by downloading the attunement at automaticintuition.com. Before I go, I promise to leave you a message and answer to a question or a concern you may have, so take a moment to think about your issue. Hold it in your mind or speak it out loud. I'll pause for just a few seconds. Right now. It's time to get rid of clutter. In your house, in your office, in your car, in your heart and mind. If you clean out your environment, it will shift your energy on all levels. Get rid of anything that's holding you back, no matter how big or small. Dirty clothes on the floor or relationships that no longer serve you. It all accumulates to weigh you down. Look around. Notice what you're surrounding yourself with. Does it hold positive energy? If not, get rid of it. You need to create the space for new energy to enter your life. And I'll talk to you later.